welcome to Banfield. I hope you are all enjoying the holiday week and that you're nestled safe and warm with your loved ones. Very weirdly, this is actually the perfect time to binge on some true crime cases. And what better than to add to the recipe, uh, infamous killers. And I am not talking about the usual suspects here. No, I'm not talking about the household monsters like Dahmer and Gacy and BTK. Instead, Tonight we have cooked up a show that is filled with a rare but deadly breed of killers. Women. Women. It's weird, right? Because women are the ones who normally are the nurturers and they raise us. But instead, the ones we're talking about are the women who take a violent turn towards homicidal violence. And when I think of women who kill, it never ever fails. But the first person that comes to mind is Eileen Warnos. Like chills. Maybe you saw the movie starring Charlize Theron. It was called Monster. It was awesome. She won an Oscar. Or maybe you lived through the actual trial of Eileen Warnos, if you are an original true crime fan. But Eileen has the eyes and the face and the voice that can haunt your every nightmare. She was filled with such a psychotic anger that it is actually a wonder more victims didn't fall prey to her handgun. I don't know, maybe they did, actually. Who knows? There could be a lot of dead people out there by her hand. We don't know. It's actually impossible to know when Eileen Warnos was telling the truth or ranting about lies. It is believed that she murdered seven men in the span of a year. She was convicted or pleaded uh, guilty to six of them. One of the bodies was never found, so six. And Warnos was handed six life sentences as well. She absolutely screamed her way through just about all of her hearings, complaining that she was a rape victim and that society was to blame for her murderous rampage. But in the end, and this is amazing, just hours before she was executed, literally hours before she was executed, she admitted to a documentary filmmaker that she needed to go to her execution with a clear conscience and that she needed to correct the record. She admitted that she made up all the stories of self-defense against rape. And uh, she said she killed all those men, actually, so that she just wouldn't leave a robbery witness behind. Cannot go in the execution chamber and die in the execution chamber as a liar. And I cannot go in the execution chamber and be executed under the devil. I have to come clean and cleanse my spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, so I have to come clean and tell the world the lies that went on through my mouth. I mean, the, now prosecutors and well, cops. And that, you, and that you killed seven men. Huh? That you killed those men in cold blood. Yeah, and i got to come clean that I killed those seven men in first-degree murder and robbery. As they said, they had it right. A serial killer. Not so much like thrill kill. I was into the robbing biz. I mean... You know, serial killers are in this thrill-killing jazz. I was into the robbing, just and eliminate a witness. And that's when she told the filmmaker that she indeed did kill those men in self-defense, that she was raped, but that she was just tired of being on death row, and she just wanted to die. And if there is one thing that Eileen Warnos had in common with another lady killer, Lori Vallow, it's that they both struggled mightily with their mental health. But that's pretty much where the similarities ended. Uh, their murders had absolutely nothing in common. Lori Vallow, the so-called doomsday cult mom, 
she murdered her own two kids and then her romantic rival as well, the woman married to her cult leader. That was Chad Daybell, a guy who would become uh, her husband once wife number one was out of the way. And it was all in the name of sex and money and religion, so said the prosecutors, as they were actually trying Lori Vallow. Given that she killed her own children, her case is certainly among the most heinous and astonishing in the record books. And it was just this time last year, actually, that a judge was trying to figure out if Lori was even mentally fit to stand trial after spending 10 months in a state hospital. But a year later, with Lori firmly secured behind a lifetime of iron bars, we have endured her roller coaster of a murder trial in Boise, Idaho. We have heard the private cell phone calls, we have read the steamy text messages, and we've seen the never before seen videos, right? All of which they plotted out this like twisted scheme to start a brand new life with her lover, Chad Daybell, the culty guru dude. It was a life that depended on eliminating what were considered dark spirits. Get rid of the dark spirits from your past, all will be good. But the problem is for Vallo, dark spirits meant her seven-year-old boy, JJ, and her 14-year-old daughter, Tylee. They had to go. Two children, kids, smiling kids, whose dead bodies were found hacked and charred and bound and buried in the boyfriend Chad Daybell's backyard. Lori's defense team had, I think, you know, it's fair to say, uphill climb to defend her. They fought her conviction, but their only win actually came before the trial had actually started because the judge decided that Lori would not be eligible for death row. No death penalty for Lori. Instead, Lori would be sentenced to multiple life terms. It was all, you know, on a technicality, but that was that. And Lori certainly is not the only lady killer who has raised eyebrows and made big, big headlines. Uh, Jody Arias is another one that comes to mind. She became a household name, although best served up with like a healthy dose of disinfectant. Jody is one of the most ruthless killers and compulsive liars of our time. It is hard to believe it's been 15 years since she stabbed her ex-boyfriend 27 times, slashing his throat and then shooting Travis Alexander just to make sure Travis stayed dead. Her trial didn't happen for almost five years, and it was um, fair to say a national spectacle. And that was mostly because Jody herself decided to take the stand. Very rare. But that wasn't even the big part of it. It's that Jody lied and lied and lied through her teeth for 19 days straight on the stand. So not only did she take the stand, she stayed on the stand for 19 days, and the lying was exquisite. I know because I was there uh, for that trial. And if the death penalty is reserved for the worst of the worst, it is a holy miracle that she skated on that one. She didn't get death. Instead, when she was convicted, 2013, she was locked away for life, no chance of parole unless she comes out with a toe tag. So what is life like for a bloodthirsty killer like Jody Arias? And does she have anything in common with Brenda Spencer, another lady killer, although I don't know what we can say lady. And not because she wasn't prim and proper, 
is because she was pretty young. Brenda's much less famous, but she is no less deadly. She was a freckle-faced 16-year-old. And Brenda took the rifle and the scope that her daddy had given her for Christmas, and on January 29th of 1979, Brenda opened fire on a San Diego elementary school, shooting for 20 minutes straight. She killed two people, she hurt nine more, and this was long before mass shootings were like a weekly affair in America. In Brenda's national headline, a standoff between police, police officers and her uh, lasted more than six hours before they could finally take Brenda into custody. And when asked why she did it, she told a reporter, quote, I just don't like Mondays. And that is an answer that inspired a hit record for the band The Boomtown Rats. I don't like Mondays. Spencer, though officially a child when this happened, was tried as an adult and she was sentenced to life in prison with a shot at parole after 25 years. But can someone who carries out such a sinister plot ever be rehabilitated? She was actually up for parole in 2019. That was after spending 40 years in prison and the answer was no. Brenda is still behind bars. And so is Susan Smith. Some might say there's a special place in hell for people like Susan Smith. Moms who kill their helpless little, little ones. In 1994, Susan Smith told police in South Carolina that she was carjacked by a nasty black man who took off with her two babies, her young sons, Michael and Alex, strapped in their car seats in the back. And for nine days, she kept that going. She begged on national television for the safe return of those boys. And everything she said, everything out of that cake hole was a filthy lie. A lie that she finally confessed to. She admitted that there was no carjacker. Thanks. Pretty racist of you, but thanks. Uh, the truth of what really happened to her boys was way more sinister than that. She herself had strapped the babies into the car seats and then just let that car roll into a lake, drowning them. Why would she do such a thing? It turns out she was secretly dating a man who didn't want kids. And that was that. While serving her life sentence, Susan Smith has certainly had a few bumps behind bars, sex and drugs and some self-mutilation too. But I want to begin with Lori Vallow. She's not quite three months into her life sentence in Idaho for murdering her two kids and plotting to murder her husband's first wife. But she's been packing up whatever she had in her cell and preparing to fly south for the winter. There will be no sand and surf because she'll be in chains for the trip and she'll be locked up again um, the minute she lands. That's kind of her life now. Wherever she goes, locked back up. Uh, it's extradition to Arizona for a whole new set of charges and a whole new trial, again, involving more dead people in Lori's wake. The so-called doomsday cult mom is accused of murdering, actually conspiring to murder one of her previous five husbands named Charles Vallow, and she's also accused of conspiring to kill her ex-nephew-in-law. That would be uh, her niece's husband. I know, it's tough. There's a lot of dead people. Uh, his name is Brandon Boudreau, and uh, he lived. Brandon lived, so thank God. Husband number five for Lori, and presumably her last one, uh, his name is Chad Daybell, we mentioned it, um, and he himself is set to stand trial this coming April for his alleged roles in the murders of Lori's kids, JJ and Tylee, and also his late wife, Tammy. 
And we thought this as good a time as any to look back at the tangled web of their religious delusions, plus their twisted love affair and the trial of, or the trail rather, of death that uh, was left in their wake. If Lori Vallow Daybell and her fifth husband, Chad Daybell, are innocent as they claim to be, if they are not the murderous psychopaths that the prosecutors say they are, then they've been lightning rods for tragedy. In a span of just seven months before Vallow was first arrested in early 2020, her fourth husband, Charles Vallow, was shot to death. Her seven-year-old special needs son, JJ, and her 16-year-old daughter, Ty Lee, disappeared, never to be seen again. And Chad Daybell's wife at the time, Tammy, the mother of the couple's five children, she died in her sleep. Two weeks after that, with JJ and Tylee still missing and the subjects of a nationwide search, Chad and Lori married each other. Clearly, their sudden and untimely and mysterious tragedies had taught them to seize every moment in a life that is both short and uncertain. Or maybe their tragedies had been engineered, conceived and carried out by Lori and Chad for reasons that ranged from the carnal to the supernatural. Lori and Chad, it appeared, were soulmates in the most literal sense of the word. Not only special in the eyes of each other, but chosen. Two of only 144,000 souls predestined to survive the end of the world. And the end of the world was coming, July 22nd, 2020. Police who investigated one of their many untimely losses reported that, quote, Lori believed she was an exalted goddess with extraordinary abilities. Lori and Chad felt they were qualified to tell whether someone had demonic spirits attached to them. If you offered any opposition to their belief or their destiny, you were seen as possessed and your fate allegedly was sealed. It was all a far cry from the sun-drenched, family-friendly Mormonism that Lori Noreen Cox and her four siblings had grown up with in California back in the 80s. Her mom remembers Lori and her sister Summer as energetic and athletic and happy. Lori and Summer both took dance and they both ended up being cheerleaders. They both loved sports. They both played on the softball team that I coached, our church softball team, for three years. But Lori's brother, Adam, says her inner life was far less wholesome. It only grew darker as adulthood brought with it one failed marriage after another. Husband number one came along when Lori was just 19. Three years and one divorce later, Lori got married again and Lori divorced again, all inside one year. This marriage produced a child, a son named Colby. Marriage number three to a Texas businessman named Joe Ryan, that lasted three years. That was the longest one yet. And this one produced another child, Ty Lee, who wouldn't live to see her 17th birthday. It also provided Lori's first taste of fame years before she found infamy 
In 2004, Lori Ryan won a local beauty pageant and went on to compete for the title of Mrs. Texas. She didn't win it, but she did make an impression when she described herself to the judges as a ticking time bomb. She did better the same year on Wheel of Fortune, where a quick wit and... Yeah, three N. Strong nerves. I had no money anyway. Well, okay, then let's the darn thing up. Oh, my goodness, what is going on? What do we have? Oh, my God. And a little bit of luck helped her to win $17,000. Gopher, Doc, Isaac, and Captain Stubing. Yeah! In hindsight, the pre-game chit-chat is both chilling and poignant. I have a wonderful husband, Joseph, at home, who is watching our two beautiful children, Colby, who is seven, and Tylee, who is one. Yeah, what do you guys like to do for fun? We like to play all kinds of sports on our three acres. Okay, sounds like you have a nice life there. We do. Congratulations. Thank nice you. to have you with us. But Lori and her wonderful Joe Ryan were not meant to be. And this split was uglier than the others. During a custody fight, Lori accused Joe of abusing both Ty Lee and Colby. And Lori's brother, Alex, attacked Joe with a taser. Their brother, Adam, told police that Alex and Lori, quote, planned to kill Joe. But he survived and was cleared of the abuse allegations. Alex Cox was convicted of assault and sentenced to three months in jail. And Lori married again. Husband number four was Charles Vallow, who had two children from a previous marriage. Lori and Charles were together an unprecedented 14 years, during which they adopted his two-year-old great-nephew, Joshua Jackson, whom the family called JJ. Lori would later call him and his big sister, Tylee, zombies. Charles looked at his wife's increasingly unhinged religious beliefs with concern and then with alarm. By 2018, she was devouring the apocalyptic novels and doomsday prophecies of an Idaho man, Chad Daybell, who was self-publishing and aggressively peddling. So Lori had always been a fan of Chad's books. And so that's how I first heard about Chad from Lori was she would talk about this author that she was really interested in and really connected with his work. For Daybell, the end times were the natural culmination of a career path that started with a job digging graves while he studied journalism at Brigham Young University. Chad told a Utah newspaper that he found the job of cemetery sexton, as it's called, rewarding, but sad when you have to bury babies. He wrote a book about that in 2001. Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow met face-to-face -face for the first time in the fall of 2018 at a gathering in Utah of a group called Preparing a People. Some have called it a cult. Chad reportedly told his attractive and eager disciple they'd shared many past lives. Their future life together was ordained, or so they believed. But the non-believers, the zombies, those supposedly possessed of dark spirits would allegedly have to be dealt with. And Charles Vallow was at the top of that list. Vallow's dark spirit even had a name. Lori called it Ned Schneider. Charles called the police. Wait, what did she say yesterday? She said, you're not Charles. I don't know who you are, what you did with Charles, but I can murder you now with my powers. In time, the couple separated. Lori, Ty Lee, and JJ moved to Arizona. 
Charles stayed in Texas, but feared for the children and so filed a mental health petition with Arizona police. He wanted Lori committed. She wasn't. Then he filed for divorce. Lori and Chad were staying connected by text, some of which Chad, ever the novelist, wrote in third person. One reads, when their hands touched, he felt a shock pass through him and his heart started beating fast. The two also did podcasts where the topics included the color of Jesus's eyes in one of Chad's visions. But to be clear, his eyes are crystal blue. Is that correct? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah, crystal blue is the best <laughs> description, I suppose. <laughs> That's what the people want to hear. They want to know. Yeah. It's a big debate at my house. Because of all the different portraits. <laughs> it's a big debate at my house. And they may not have been blue when he was on the earth. Is that what you're saying? This is in his resurrected right. state. Right. Yeah, his, I was seeing him in his resurrected state, and that's what I saw. The other voice in that interview was Lori's longtime friend, Melanie Gibb, whose name will come up again. In 2019, July, Charles went to Lori's house for a visit, and Lori's brother, Alex, shot him dead. The same brother, Alex, who a decade earlier had tased and supposedly conspired to murder Lori's previous husband, Joe Ryan. Ryan, incidentally, had passed away of a heart attack the year before Charles Vallow died in 2018, and no foul play was suspected, at least not officially. Joe Ryan's sister strongly suspected Lori, who, after his death, made a shocking and secretly recorded confession to a private gathering of fellow believers. She spoke of a personal breaking point, which was also a spiritual turning point, way back when she and Ryan were divorcing in 2004. I was going to murder him. I was going to kill him, like the scriptures say, like Nephi killed him, just to stop the pain and to stop him coming after me and to stop him coming after my children. Instead, Lori says she turned her life to the temple. And brother Alex, having stopped just short of murder when Ryan was giving Lori problems, he told police that he killed Vallow in self-defense. Vallow was enraged, he said, and threatening the family with a bat. Lori and Ty Lee backed him up. So my stepdad was like, he, didn't, he was like, I don't even know how to explain it. He honestly just looked like kind of a crazy person. Okay. Like screaming and like his face was beat red. He just looked like really mad. I remember when he took the back of me, I saw his face for like a split second and I honestly like, it didn't even look like him. He just looked like pure like rage. Then came September. Lori moved herself, Ty Lee, and JJ to Rexburg, Idaho, where Chad Daybell lived with his wife, Tammy Daybell, a school librarian. The Daybells had been married 29 years and had three sons and two daughters. Alex Cox made the move too, into the same apartment building as Lori and the kids. They celebrated their new digs with a family trip to Yellowstone National Park. Lori, Ty Lee, JJ, and Uncle Alex. This, incidentally, is the last photo ever taken of Ty Lee. The day after she disappeared, Alex's cell phone pinged in Daybell's backyard for two hours, after which Daybell texted his wife this. I spotted a big raccoon along the fence. I hurried and got my gun, and he was still walking along. I got close enough 
That one shot did the trick. He's now in our pet cemetery. JJ was last seen two weeks later. This is his last known photo in a pair of red jammies with the words Sleepy Hero on the front. Melanie Gibb, Lori's friend and co-podcaster, remember? She was up for the weekend along with her boyfriend, and when they didn't see JJ on the morning of September 23rd, Lori reportedly explained that her young son was being a zombie and that Alex took him away. Sure enough, Alex's cell phone pinged at the Daybell property again, this time for just 17 minutes. It was a busy time for Uncle Alex. The following week, he apparently tried to shoot a man named Brandon Boudreaux in Arizona. Boudreaux was the soon-to-be ex-husband of Lori Vallow's niece, who he claimed was up to no good, just like her aunt. In a court filing from the couple's divorce and child custody battle, Boudreaux alleged that his estranged wife, quote, is involved in a cult where numerous members, adults and children alike, have been killed off like flies. He claimed that not only Lori, but her niece, Boudreaux's wife, knew what happened to JJ and Tyler. And after the attempt on his own life, he claimed that his wife had put Alex up to it, both to shut him up and to collect on his life insurance. None of that was ever proven in court, though Boudreaux's attacker, whose bullet just missed Boudreaux's head, was driving a Jeep belonging to the late Charles Vallow. Tammy Daybell passed away in her sleep on the night of October 19th. She'd been in poor health, they said, and when the coroner said her death appeared natural, her children believed it, and she was buried days later. The trouble is, Tammy was a marathon runner, and not many people ever thought she was sick. And just days after that, Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow were married on a beach in Hawaii. No friends, no family, no followers invited. However it happened, through fate or ordinary evil, their path was now clear. Their mystical vision realized, or almost, the end of days was still just a few months away. But now they were ready. And an elderly couple 4,000 miles away was heartsick and prepared to make trouble. Coming up, when it all came crashing down, the family and the friends of Lori and Chad Daybell began to poke holes in their web of lies. Where were her two kids? And how did Chad's wife mysteriously die just weeks before Chad and Lori tied the knot at a beach wedding in Hawaii? And then the story takes a grim turn the day two small sets of human remains were found buried on Chad's property. They'd soon be identified as JJ and Tylee, Lori's kids. After she and Chad are arrested for murder, a veritable circus begins. Bouncing through the various courtrooms, Lori wore bright red lipstick, smiling at Chad and everybody else in the gallery, including her dead kid's grandparents. Did she even understand what was going on? And it turns out maybe not. Lori's rapidly declining mental health puts her Idaho trial on ice. That's next. is Charles Vallow's sister and JJ's grandmother. After not hearing from JJ or Tylee for months, they pressed the police in Idaho from their home in Louisiana to do a welfare check. It did not go as they'd hoped. Months later, they'd watch body cam video at a court hearing for Chad. I just talked to the guy on the phone. What did he ask you? He was just saying that he wanted to do a well check on JJ. So JJ would be where? He's in Arizona. 
Who's he with in Arizona? He's with one of my friends in Arizona. The friend, Melanie Gibb, Vallow's occasional fellow podcaster, and the same friend who'd been visiting with her boyfriend the weekend J.J. vanished. In fact, J.J. was not with Melanie Gibb in Arizona, and it didn't take Gibb long to tell police that Lori had asked her to lie about it. By then, the police had gone back to the Vallow Daybell residence with a search warrant, but the couple was gone back to Hawaii. And suddenly, the natural death of the first Mrs. Daybell seemed possibly not so natural. Her body was exhumed, an autopsy done, and the reported conclusion was homicide, asphyxiation. Tammy had likely been smothered. And though Alex Cox would never be connected with that death, the very next day, Uncle Alex was back in the headlines with his own death. He dropped dead in the house he was sharing in Arizona with his bride of two weeks. His autopsy showed blood clots in his lungs. No foul play. In Hawaii, the questions kept coming for the newlywed Daybells, who were renting a beachfront townhouse for $6,000 a month. Nate Eaton with East Idaho News. Can you tell me where your kids are? Where are your kids? No comment? They've been missing for four months. You have nothing to say? You're over here in Hawaii? Where are your children? Yeah, why don't you just give us a comment? Just tell us where they are. Chad, where are Lori's kids? What happened to Tammy, Chad? By year's end, police in Idaho would declare J.J. and Ty Lee missing. And the lack of cooperation from Lori and Chad? Astonishing. The Woodcocks put up a $20,000 reward for information. And Colby, the children's big brother, Lori's firstborn son from her second marriage, pleaded with his mom to come clean. But nothing worked. And in February of 2020, Lori Daybell was arrested in Hawaii on felony counts of desertion and non-support of her children. Defendant has not only misled law enforcement in their efforts to find the children, but she has completely and utterly refused to aid in any attempts to find the children, even before charges were filed. Chad Daybell wasn't arrested until June, four months later. That's when the police, the county sheriff, and the FBI found the bodies of J.J. and Ty Lee in shallow graves in Chad Daybell's backyard in Rexburg. The bodies were bagged, dismembered, and Ty Lee was partially burned. Daybell was charged on the spot with destruction, alteration, or concealment of evidence. Eventually, Lori and Chad were each charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder in the deaths of the children, but also in the death of Tammy Daybell. Lori was charged in Arizona as well with conspiracy to murder Charles Vallow. And now she was eager to profess her innocence, not to reporters, but to her surviving relatives. The first thing she said to me was, Mom, you know me. You know I'm taking care of my kids. Lori also wanted to reassure her old pal, Melanie, who recorded the call. I promise you that I have done nothing wrong in this case, but sometimes you have to hide in a cavity of a rock for your own life safety. And that's what the Lord requires of you sometimes. And that's how it is. And I'm sorry that's how it is, because there is a lot of darkness on the earth. Noreen 
Ryan Vallow Daybell. Keeping that darkness at bay has been the struggle of a lifetime, this lifetime and maybe others. But does that make her crazy? Since her arrest, Lori's competence, her ability to understand the charges against her and to aid in her own defense, well, that's been the subject of hearings and rulings and months of inpatient treatment. And the Woodcocks, JJ and Ty Lee's devoted and long-suffering grandparents, have heard quite enough. I do feel that it's just an excuse. Lori knows right from wrong. I don't know Chad, but I do know Lori knows right from wrong, and that's all it takes in this. Life boils down to a choice and a consequence, and I can absolutely guarantee that Lori and Chad were both sane. In the fall of last year, a judge agreed. Lori Daybell was finally, and for a second time, deemed fit to stand trial. Prosecutors had every intention of trying both the Daybells together and sending both the Daybells to death row if convicted. But neither of those things are gonna happen. In recent weeks, the judge ordered separate trials, Lori now, Chad later, and barred the state of Idaho from seeking to execute Lori. For now, at least, capital punishment remains on the table for Chad, who somehow is still a mortal being, like Lori and everybody else, 32 months after the end of the world. Still to come, it has been 15 years since Jody Arias snaked her way across the country at night to shoot and stab her boyfriend 27 times. When she was tried for his murder, she lied for 18 days straight on the stand. So, what is that maniacal killer up to behind bars these days? That's next. For 18 days, I am never going to get back. I say that because I was so angry looking at Jody Arias on the stand testifying for all of those days because she was literally spewing venomous lies out of her cake hole for that long at the rest of us. And it was maddening to be lied to like that, but it was also heartbreaking because Travis Alexander's family was in the gallery having to listen to it too, and it hurts them a hell of a lot more than it hurts the rest of us. But that horrible beast, Jody Arias, did that. She took her big fat hubris up onto the stand and she just spewed and spewed and spewed, figuring she was smarter than all of us. <laughs> you weren't. She was convicted of murdering him, stabbing him 27 times, slashing his throat, shooting him in the head. That's, that's this girl. And she was sent to the Perryville prison in Goodyear, Arizona. All of this, I tell you, because it was 15 years ago yesterday that she did that to Travis Alexander. 15 years. Hard to believe. Took five years to get to trial. The trial was four months long. Uh, here's a little reminder if you didn't, uh, well, if you didn't sit through it and even if you did, this was Jody. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, and the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first-degree murder guilty. Five jurors find premeditated, zero find felony murder, seven find both premeditated and felony. Signed, four-person. Is this your true verdict, so say you want and all? Yeah, they didn't believe you. 
Too bad. So she did get spared the death penalty. She was put away for life, no parole. She's at the Perryville Prison in Goodyear, Arizona. Um, prison records say that she's actually moved to a medium-slash-low-custody-class security wing of the prison. She's working as a library aide, been doing that since 2018. Before that, she was in the store warehouse, where I'm sure she really enjoyed her time. She's not eligible, obviously, for any release ever, so enjoy that. Jody. I want to bring in Kirk Nurmi. He was Jody Arias' defense attorney at her trial. He was the author of the book Trapped with Ms. Arias. Kirk, good to see you again. Um, I, you know, I often wonder when I'm looking at defense attorneys who are sitting by their clients, and I wonder how many of them really want their clients to get convicted, even though they're doing God's work in, in defending them and, and defending the Constitution of the United States. But did you ever feel that way about her, that you thought, oh, God, just let it be over? Well, it certainly let it be over was one of the things. I mean, I chose to title my book Trapped with Miss Arias for a reason because what a lot of people don't realize is I was assigned her case as a public defender back in 2009. So you talk about 18 days. I was trapped with her for about five and a half years. Um, ultimately, when I left the public defender's office, I thought I was going to leave the case behind. And it just kept going for for many different reasons, which I do outline in the book. And, you know, when we were hitting this point in late May of 2013, I thought, finally, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And then when the jury hung, as it related to sentencing, that light got turned off. And I was the unhappiest guy in Vegas because I knew I wasn't done with this. And I wasn't done with Miss Arias until April 2015 when she was sentenced to life in prison. So, did look, a lot of people said she did herself in with all those days on the stand, just spewing lies um, and pretending, well, she truly, I believe, narcissistically believed she was the smartest person in the room, if not the country. Um, did you advise her not to do that? Did you really struggle? Was this all her doing? Like, I'm getting up there. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to be Jody. Uh, I wiggle my way into anything and I get what I want. Or, or how did that turn out? Well, ultimately, you know, actually, that's attorney-client privilege. I have written a book, and I'm not practicing anymore, but I, I, you know, I think my book was the ethical response to some of the lies she told about me afterwards. Obviously, Miss Arias is a, is a world-renowned liar. She's told lies about all, all sorts of people. But ultimately, you know, a client makes their own decision. The, an attorney can advise, they can't control. And I guess I'm going to have to leave my answer at that with, with her motion, motion for post-conviction relief against me still pending. So let's, let's leave it at that tonight, huh? Kirk, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ashley. Coming up, most people may not know it, but one of the first school shootings in the United States of America was actually committed by a teenage girl. January 1979. 16-year-old Brenda Spencer opened fire on a schoolyard across from her house in San Diego. And that attack, that attack struck fear into the hearts of Americans and set a terrifying national precedent. When we come back, the infamous reason she gave for putting elementary school kids in her crosshairs and the hit song that was made famous by her rampage. It's next. It's real because I did it, you know, and I take responsibility for doing, you know, the crime itself. Um, I remember up to a certain point, clearly, and that was, I guess, when the drugs started to kick in, because all that morning I had been drinking and uh, taking the pills with the, the, the whiskey and stuff. 
By the time Brenda Spencer gave a TV interview on her infamous rampage at Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego, she'd been in prison for 13 years. And now it's been more than 40 years since a 16-year-old Spencer picked up the rifle and scope that her father had given her for Christmas and fired 36 rounds out the window of their house directly across the street from Cleveland Elementary. It was early in the morning. Students, teachers, and staff members were gunned down in the parking lot as they showed up to start their day. Spencer fired for 20 minutes until a quick-thinking San Diego patrolman commandeered a garbage truck and parked it between the school and Spencer's house. After that, the teen held the police at bay for another six hours. She talked on and off with the negotiators, telling one of them that the victims were easy pickings. She also spoke to a reporter for the San Diego Tribune who phoned her house, confirmed this 16-year-old girl was really the shooter and asked her why she did it. Her answer spawned a hit single for the Boomtown Rats band. I don't like Mondays, tell me why I don't like Mondays. I just don't like Mondays, Brenda Spencer said. I did this because it's a way to cheer up the day. The Boomtown Rats lead singer, Bob Geldof was doing a radio interview in Atlanta when news of the shooting broke. He later said Spencer gave a senseless reason for a senseless act, and he wrote a senseless song to illustrate it. The teen's family tried and failed to stop the record from coming out. Brenda Spencer killed two people that horrible Monday, the school's principal and its head custodian. She wounded eight children and a police officer. The following year, she pleaded guilty to two counts of murder, and she was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. She told her attorneys that her father had sexually abused her from the age of nine. That same father who went on to marry her 17-year-old cellmate in juvie. The drugs she took the morning of the killings were for epilepsy, and she washed them down with alcohol. But prosecutors didn't believe then, and they don't believe now, that she could hit so many targets from 150 feet if she'd been under the influence of anything. She's been up for parole many times over the years, most recently, just last August. And every single time, the answer has been no. Thank you for being with us tonight. Great to have you. Have a great weekend. Stay tuned. Cuomo's next. Hello, hello. I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Wednesday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. Got Colorado's decision. Is it going to impact the race? Yep. It's already being weaponized. News Nation political editor Chris Steyerwalt is here to break down the state of play. And the big man here in person, towering over me physically and intellectually with his take on the election and why he thinks the border. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.